Happy Holidays from the DSR Network. We are deeply appreciative of our members and the year that we've had. To celebrate the holiday season, we are offering a 50% discount on either your first month or first year of membership. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the members-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of December, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month or for the first year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRHOLIDAY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRHOLIDAY. Thank you very much for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the podcast uh, that we lovingly call We're All Gonna Die Radio. Um, I'm your host for today, John Wolfstall, and sadly, uh, David Rothkoff, our leader and my usual co-host, is uh, AWOL. I think the the fear and uh, adrenaline finally got to him and decided to take a long weekend. But um, I'm really excited that we are joined today by uh, regular We're All Gonna Die podcaster Heather Williams, who runs the Project on Nuclear Issues at CSIS, and her colleague, uh, Lachlan McKenzie, who's a program associate with the Pony program at CSIS. Um, we'll be talking about a really fascinating uh, report that they've just released uh, all about our favorite uh, uh, We're All Gonna Die protagonist, Vladimir Putin, and Russian nuclear signaling. Then we're also going to talk about a couple other things that will uh, send you running for the bar cabinet. So let me start by welcoming Heather. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. And Lachlan. Hello. Thanks so much for having us on. No worries. Thanks for coming. Uh, nothing better to do on Friday, of course, than to uh, talk about doom and gloom and whether or not we're, we're as we joke on the podcast, we are, of course, all going to die. We just don't know when. Uh, but sometimes you think about that more than others. And usually when Vladimir Putin's making news or his hench people, um, uh, that, that timeline accelerates. You all, instead of running from the headlines, decided to go back and dig through all the things that Vladimir Putin and the Russian nuclear uh, community have said, and talk about whether it really meant what we think it meant. So, Heather, can you talk for a couple of minutes about what you did, and then let's um, dig in a little bit more on what you found. And then I also want to know why you really decided that this was where to spend your time. So, uh, sure. The I mean, the top headline you kind of already gave it, John. The, the headline of the report is doom and gloom. That there is a lot to be concerned about in terms of how Vladimir Putin uses nuclear weapons, in terms of how he makes his nuclear threats. However, we also did find uh, some potential good news stories in there in looking at what might have avoided escalation and what might have calmed things down a little bit. So that's really the top line that I hope people take away from the report. Um, but the what we did for the report was 
uh, Lachlan and another fantastic Pony team member, Reja Yunus, went and collected uh, all of the data that they could find from the start of the invasion through um, July of this year. And Lachlan focused on the Russian side and he pulled up pretty much like every nuclear incident that we could. And on the Russian side, that included any threats, uh, statements, exercises, et cetera. And then what Reja did uh, was she did collected the same data, but on the NATO side, on the U.S. side. And so what we had was, and if you go look at the report, just to flag for everyone, this is a visual report. It is not a text-heavy PDF. It looks like a Soviet propaganda poster, very intentionally. Um, but you can see this visual of the Russia threat, NATO response, Russia threat, China response in some instances. And so it's really meant to show what did Russia do? How did the West respond? And what does that really tell us? So that that's what we did. Um, Lachlan obviously did the heavy lifting on the Russia data collection. And I, I think he probably had the hardest job of all because he had to read Medvedev's tweets on a regular basis, which is uh, amusing, but also depressing. Um, well, look, I, I have to read Jeffrey Lewis's tweet. So, you know, we we're, we're all have access to, to, to crosses to bear here, Heather. So like a good manager, you delegated the hard stuff to Lachlan. So let me ask you, Lachlan, I mean, one, how many drinks a day did you have while you were doing this? And two, you know, people who read the headlines, like most of our listeners and, and listen to podcasts, like all of our listeners, um, obviously got bits and pieces of this. But what did you find that really you think was was different than just Russia's threatening the use of nuclear weapons? So in terms of in terms of drink consumed, a lot of Red Bull, some five hour energy. And then in terms of what is different from what we found than, than what a person just looking at headlines might think is that I think if you're just looking at what comes through in Western media, Russian threats seem kind of disparate um, and, and not necessarily connected in terms of what the threats are related to. When you look, at, take a longer look and more in-depth look of what the Russians were talking about over time, it's easier to see shifts in what the Russians were focusing on. So we broke our analysis into three phases that roughly correspond to, to shifts in Russian signaling. The first being February uh, through July 2022, the second being August through October 2022, and the third being November through July 2023. And so during that first phase, February through July, we found that Russian threats focused overwhelmingly on the threat of NATO intervention in Ukraine. And it seemed like the Russians were primarily occupied with deterring direct U.S.-NATO intervention in Ukraine. In August, things shifted. Uh, with the start of the NPT review conference, uh, Russian rhetoric became much more consolatory uh, and then escalated as soon as that conference ended. And uh, the Ukrainians began making it, uh, advances on the battlefield. And so beginning in September, really, and continuing through the end of October, Russian rhetoric escalated dramatically as the Ukrainians advanced uh, and then cooled off again in November in response, seemingly in response to Western and international pressure and never really reached the same level of intensity since. Interesting. So it, it, in full disclosure and, and to the credit of the Pony crew, I got asked along with a bunch of other nuclear nerds to go and sort of red team this report. And so um, since I won those arguments, I want to uh, re rehash them openly here. Um, it, it, there is, I think there are two interesting counter narratives here, right? One is uh, Putin, the aggressor, the invader, uses nuclear weapons to blunt American uh, troops or NATO troops on the ground in Ukraine. And he succeeded. 
and two, that uh, Russia was chastised by um, by China and India from using nuclear threats, and that really forced them to pull back. And until we get to sit down with Vladimir Putin and have a cup of tea, not advised, um, and ask him questions, I don't think we'll really know the answer, but obviously the way we perceive these things will have a big impact on U.S. policy. And so I'm sort of curious, Heather, do you remember well the conversation we had my experience with with President Biden when he was vice president leads me to believe he was probably not that interested in putting U.S. troops on the ground in Ukraine. It wasn't like NATO was chomping at the bit here. So how do we think through whether this is really what Putin was trying to do um, or whether we just ourselves have interpreted this and, and worry that he's succeeded, even if that may not be the case? Like, how do you have confidence that this is really what he was after and that he's interpreted it this way? I have a very unsatisfying answer to that, which is, well, two unsatisfying answers, which makes it doubly dissatisfying. Uh, but but the first one is, um, any of these questions, as you prefaced about Vladimir Putin, have to be approached with so much humility. And in our research, at least, we tried to be really careful to say, we cannot prove with 100% this or that or, or, or any of our findings really. And that as a researcher, I found that deeply frustrating because I want to know with 100% certainty, this is why this happened. But if we take that same humility, I, I think it also applies to, to your point, which is, as you said, it might seem like the Biden administration wouldn't have put boots on the ground. We can't really know 100% if it was that Biden wouldn't have done that anyways. We can't quite know the impact of nuclear weapons on this. Like it, it's, it's very tempting to say it was this single thing that was definitive. But in this case in particular, I think it's more complicated and it's really hard to disaggregate a lot of those different pieces. So I'm, I'm sorry to be so dissatisfied on a Friday, Friday morning. Heather, this is why I like working with you. You're not, you're, 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 you're unsatisfying and you make you validate my own lack of satisfaction, right? I mean, you're right that we have to be humble about these things. A lot of these things are theological until and unless the horrible nuclear war happens and then we, you know, the survivors figure out what caused it. We're, we're really, you know, struggling to do the best we can. Lachlan, I want to I dig in on a separate issue, which is um, the echo chamber in Russia, right? So, um, for those of us who are really into this sort of thing, uh, my favorite episode was when the uh, Russian uh, television uh, media developed the um, uh, animation of the nuclear sparked tsunami that would flood uh, Great Britain and England. Heather, I know you gasped having lived in, in London, thinking of all your favorite kebab places going down. Um, but how did you digest what was clearly leadership statements? And just the echo chamber where people are trying to prove to, to Vlad the Impaler, I'm I'm with you, buddy. Don't don't send me any uh, you know special perfume um, uh, for for Christmas. Like, how did you think through what was real and what was really just sort of the echo piece here? I think that's another thing that we can't be totally sure about. Uh, so we included all statements by a select group of senior Russian officials. And it's very hard to tell, or actually impossible to tell in this situation, which of those were reflections of things that the Kremlin had asked them to say, or which of those were, you know, a reflection of their desire to ingratiate themselves with Putin. Um, regardless, they are signals to the West, no matter why they're being said. So we included them in our data set. But again, it's, it's you know, we, we can't say which of those were intended as threats for the West and which of those were intended as you know, uh, to, to gain the favor of Putin. 
Yeah. It, for me, that's really, I think, an inter- important question, right? I mean, we learned at the end of the Cold War that there was, um, at times, a misperception, right? Everything Russia and Soviet Union were doing were seen in Washington as a direct threat, a direct challenge. And afterwards, we found, in fact, that there was extreme paranoia in, in Moscow. And some of these things were just for domestic consumption, right? Domestic politics. And, you know, I, I well, I'm sure Russian celebrities and, and other people know that we read their tweets, some of this is for a domestic audience, um, and some of it can be designed for um, reassuring maybe um, nervous military leaders, you know, don't worry, we're willing to fall back on nuclear weapons if necessary, as opposed to proactive looking for reasons to go out and nuke Ukraine. And, and again, I think that's another set of issues we're just not sure about. Um, and and um, I think even Russian experts um, that live and breathe, although you know, I feel sorry for them. Uh, I think they're they're left puzzling that question as well. Um, can, Heather, I what I, in, can I jump in on this? It only took 13 minutes for me to disagree with you, John. Uh, oh, this, so we're, I, getting better. we're getting better. <laughs> I'm going to push back on this one a little bit because you, you know you're right. This could be for domestic consumption. This could be um, a lot of posturing and Putin trying to throw his weight around a bit. That doesn't mean you shouldn't take it seriously. And by you, I mean all of us. And, and you know, I, I don't think that's what you were suggesting. But with Putin, with Xi, with authoritarians in general, I'm kind of a believer of my mother's advice. When people show you who they are, maybe you should believe them. Putin told us exactly what he was going to do. And he did it. And... That may have been for domestic consumption, but he still did do it. And I think that this has got to be one of the hardest questions for policymakers right now is this distillation of how much of this do we take seriously and respond to? And I I would suspect that was a much harder question before February of last year, whereas now I would hope that there is this realization if Putin says he's going to do something, he has suggested that he will do it. And therefore, we should take this all with a high degree of seriousness. On on the nuclear front, you know, I mean, Biden himself acknowledged that. Putin said in one of the quotes that we have, he said, this is not a bluff. Um, But getting the balance right there, I I do think is a challenge. But for the most part, these are the most serious and deadly weapons. We have to take it serious to some extent. So that is my my required disagreement with you. Now you're forcing me to agree with you, Heather. Who, you know, it, our, our raison d'être is here. You know, we we do take these things seriously. But you're right. It, um, I think it is harder for everybody um, after February uh, 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 and after the invasion um, because there are things we just thought maybe we, we knew they were possible. We just thought they were not probable. Um, good movie quote for people willing to dig deep in the archives. Um, but uh, but it is harder now to discern. Uh, and that does raise the stakes, which is why I think the, the President Biden and others have been so worried about the risk of escalation, um, because there's so many things now that are, are seen possible. Uh, Lachlan, before we let you go, um, what was just the craziest thing that the Russians said as you were going through this stuff that sticks in your mind? You're like, wow, those guys are really wackadoodle. I mean, every one of Medvedev's tweets probably deserve their own discussion. He had a lot of, he had a lot of uh, interesting things to say. Uh, this, uh, give me one. Uh, I think he had a good one, which is that uh, uh, the Europeans are worried about a nuclear accident at Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The world shouldn't forget that there are nuclear power plants in Western Europe as well, uh, which is kind of a good Bond villain. Uh, oh, that's good. That's good. 
Yeah, you can imagine the, oh, it'd be a shame if something were to happen to your nice nuclear power plant. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, well, look, look, I don't I don't know what Heather's been paying you, but clearly is not enough. And I hope that Pony uh, and CSAS provides mental health coverage um, for, you know, sort of the trauma that's been inflicted on you. But um, congrats on the report. And, 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 and Heather's right. Um, for all of you out there that aren't crazy wonks like us, um, it really is visually attractive, and even I can understand it because it was done in nice, pretty pictures and timeline. So I, I do recommend going to the CSAS and Pony website and, and checking it out. Um, maybe do it before you drink, not during or after, because it, it can it can lead to severe depression. But um, uh, appreciate the the work there, Lachlan, that went in, and thanks for joining. Yeah, us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Okay. So Heather. We're going to go from the real world to um, real people meeting, although I don't know that it necessarily had as much impact. Uh, one of the issues you and I have talked about for many years is the nuclear ban treaty. And uh, the uh, not, I realize not everybody may be aware of this. It wasn't front page or back page news pretty much anywhere. But um, the members of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons held their second member party meeting uh, last month. Uh, and got together. And I'm wondering whether you think it matters. Um, if it does matter, what came out of it that people should pay attention to? And more importantly, I'm sort of curious your take, right? We got Russia invading another country and threatening the use of nuclear weapons. Like, is is the ban treaty the, the solution to that? Is it one of the pieces? Like, how do you view the real world versus what's happening with the diplomatic world? First, for anyone who doesn't follow these things and doesn't totally wonk out, this treaty uh, was negotiated in 2017, entered into force a few years ago, I think 2021. And just to get the general gist of it, it basically just bans anything and everything having to do with nuclear weapons. It, it bans possession, transfer, proliferation. Uh, it also bans threatening to use nuclear weapons, which is essentially nuclear deterrence. This treaty is a step beyond existing treaties and existing agreements like the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, it goes farther and in, in pushing that. The treaty has, I believe, 69 members uh, at, this, at this point. Not a single nuclear possessor has joined the treaty. Not a single country that relies on nuclear weapons for their security has joined the treaty. So the, the treaty has growing support, growing numbers, that does not necessarily signify success in my mind, but the big takeaways from the conference, yeah, I think it's, I think it is a big deal that the that the meetings happened and that it's going forward. I think one of the biggest deals and one of the biggest contributions about the meeting and the treaty itself has been the scientific advisory group that they put together, uh, which is really trying to bring in some new technological. Um, tools, research uh, for, you know, the nuclear community is very slow to change. We are very siloed, uh, trying to get normal, quote unquote, normal nuclear wonks to talk about emerging technologies uh, like AI. It can be really hard sometimes. And so I do think that the treaty deserves some credit for trying to bring in that te technological aspect. Uh, the two other things that jumped out at me from the meeting, one was a couple NATO members went as observers, which uh, had happened at the previous meeting of states parties as well. To be clear for our listeners, that does not mean that they're joining. They, I think all three of, or four, I believe it was either three or four uh, that attended said explicitly, this does not signify membership. We will they, not be joining. 
they, they made it pretty clear they were there, but they weren't happy about it and they didn't love the treaty, but yeah. Yeah, and so I, I think that this doesn't signal any weakening in NATO's nuclear mission. This doesn't mean that you know NATO will suddenly stop having a nuclear component to it. That That's not what's in the winds here. It's a reminder, for me, it's a reminder that domestic audiences in Europe, there's still pressure for nuclear disarmament. And Putin's invasion of Ukraine has not convinced everybody of the enduring deterrent value of nuclear weapons. With that said, perhaps the biggest thing that jumped out at me from this meeting of states parties was what wasn't there. In their final document, they again have failed to call out Russia to call out Russia for nuclear bullying. And if the purpose of your treaty is to prohibit nuclear threats and to try to strengthen norms against nuclear threats and nuclear possession, at a minimum, this would seem like a missed opportunity for me. Heather, you're so diplomatic. I, you know, I, 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 I mean, you know, it, it, I, I've worked with, an, as of you, a number of the people that are leaders in the ban movement for many years. And I make this point to them regularly, which is, look, if you can't call out Russia for what they're doing, um, you're going to have a credibility problem. They're like, oh, well, what they're doing really isn't that much worse than what NATO threatens to do every day, which is to use nuclear weapons first. And, you know, from their perspective, they view it that way. It's not for me to say they're wrong, but they're wrong. <laughs> and 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 particularly, you know, if they're if they're, I think this is probably one of the big misunderstandings in the American policy community is that they're not trying to convince us of anything, right? Their their strategy here isn't to convince the American population to join the treaty. Their play is to get a finding from the International Court of Justice that nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence is illegal, and that any country that uh, subscribes to the ICJ. Uh, would have to abide by that. And if there are NATO countries, they would have to withdraw from NATO's nuclear sharing arrangements. And, you know, I, I, I give uh, the, the the founders of the movement a lot of credit for what I think is a really fascinating and creative approach. I, I just worry that in the end, if they're really trying to have impact in the near term, they are, as you said, missing opportunities here. I, I share that assessment. I would also add as many of the TPNW supporters have reminded me, the, TPN, the ban treaty supporters are not a monolith. Uh, if it's 69 countries, that doesn't even include the civil society groups. I think everybody has joined um, the, T, the everyone has joined the ban treaty for different reasons. And for some states, you're absolutely right. This is about trying to get NATO states to give up their commitment to a nuclear mission. This is meant to be bottom up. This isn't about the nuclear possessors. I think for other states, this is a bit of a protest movement and a sense of frustration that disarmament hasn't happened faster and that uh, they felt like this was the most likely outlet for gaining some political pressure. And that, as you say, that might lead to the ICJ um, revisiting it. But I mean, the other group that I, I feel like we have to flag that's really important is ICANN. So this is the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, won the 2017, I believe, Nobel Peace Prize. And one point that I've raised repeatedly and have not gotten a satisfactory answer to is there are some folks who support the ban treaty who are calling for the end of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty or other institutions that literally are holding the nuclear order together. And I, I think that that's why it is important to differentiate different interest groups within this ban treaty, because for some folks, the NPT is sacred and you can't touch it. For others, let's take a more anarchical approach 
and maybe we burn it all down and try to build up something better. I love the idea of disruptors. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit more about that, uh, but this is the part on the podcast where we take a short break. Um, we uh, have to say goodbye to our uh, listeners who are not subscribers, but you can easily become a subscriber. You can go to Deep State Radio. You can pay $5 a month. You can get access not only to the uh, additional material here, but on a whole host of additional podcasts. Uh, David is much funnier, uh, not as good looking, um, but also uh, covers a whole range of other issues on security, domestic affairs. So if you're not a subscriber, highly recommend you uh, joining. Uh, they make a great Hanukkah gift. Uh, it's still only the second night of Hanukkah, so you have time to get it uh, in and um, under the menorah uh, as soon as possible or for Christmas. Um, but for now, we're going to say goodbye to our free listeners, and we'll be back in a second for some additional content for our paying members. <laughs> 